let us worship God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy blessings in the year past and thy providential care. Thou art so often good to us, our Father, when we cannot be good to ourselves. And by thy mercy, thou dost lead us through the difficult places. We give thanks unto thee for thy protecting care. Guide and prosper us, we beseech thee, in the days to come, that we may be able to serve thee all the more freely and ably, and that we may glorify thy holy name. Give us victory over the powers of darkness. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture is Numbers 26, verses 1 through 65. Our subject, the second census. Numbers 26. And it came to pass after the plague that the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel, from twenty years old and upward, throughout their father's house, all that are able to go to war in Israel. And Moses and Eleazar the priests spake with them in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, saying, Take the sum of the people, from twenty years old and upward, as the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel, which went forth out of the land of Egypt. Reuben the eldest son of Israel, the children of Reuben, Hanok, of whom cometh the family of the Hanakites, and Palu, the family of the Palalites. And skipping to verse 12, the sons of Simeon after their families, of Nemuel, the family of Nemuelites, of Jamin, the family of the Jamanites, of Jacon, the family of the Jaconites. Then 15, the children of Gad after their families, of Zephon, the family of the Zephonites, of Haggai, the family of the Haggites, of Shunai, the family of the Shunites. Then skipping to verse 19, the sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah after their families were of Shelah, the family of the Shelahites, of Pharez, the family of the Pharzites, of Zerah, the family of the Zarhites. Then, verse 23, of the sons of Issachar, after their families, of Tola, the family of the Tolaites, of Pua, the family of the Punites. And verse 26, of the sons of Zebulun, after their families, of Sered, the family of the Sardites, of Elan, the family of the Elanites, 
of Jalil, the family of the Jalilites. And then 28, the sons of Joseph after their families were Manasseh and Ephraim. Verse 33, and Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the families of the Zelophehad uh, were Mala, Anoah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Verse 35, these are the sons of Ephraim after their families. Of Shuthelah, the family of the Shuthalites. Of Beker, the family of the Bacharites. Of Tehan, the family of the Tehanites. Verse 38, the sons of Benjamin after their families. Of Bela, the family of the Belaites. Of Ashbel, the family of the Ashbelites. Of Ahiram, the family of the Ahiramites. Then verse 42, these are the sons of Dan after their families. Of Shuham, the family of the Shuhamites. These are the families of Dan after their families. 44, of the children of Asher after their families. Of Jimna, the family of the Jimnites. Of Jesuai, the family of the Jesuites. Of Beriah, the family of the Berites. And 48, of the sons of Naphtali after their families. Of Jazil, the family of the Jazilites. Of Gunai, the family of the Gunites. Verse 52, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Unto these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To many thou shalt give the more inheritance, and to few thou shalt give the less inheritance. To every one shall his inheritance be given according to those that were numbered of him. Notwithstanding, the land shall be divided by lot, according to the names of the tribes of their fathers they shall inherit. According to the lot shall the possession thereof be divided between many and few. And these are they that were numbered of the Levites after their families, of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the family of Kohathites, of Merari, the family of the Merarites. Then verse 63, these are they that were numbered by Moses and Eliezer the priest to number the children of Israel in the plain of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. And among these there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And there was not left a man of them, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. This between the exciting chapters we have just considered, dealing with Balaam and Balak. And the next chapter, one of the most important, on the laws of inheritance as they relate to women seems to be a rather dull chapter, and many commentators barely give it space. But it is very important, and there are some very, very important points that are brought out. This is a census, this time, of the fighting men in Israel as Israel prepares for the invasion of Canaan. 
We are told in verses 53 to 55 that none of these men, other than Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, were in the first census made by Moses and Aaron at the time of Sinai, shortly after they left Egypt. This one was conducted under the authority of Moses and Eliezer. To give you the rounded figures for the twelve tribes, Reuben went from 46 to 43, Simeon from 59 to 22,000. These are numbers in thousands. Gad from 45 to 40. Judah from 74 to 76. Issachar from 54 to 64. Zebulun from 57 to 60. Manasseh 32 to 52. Ephraim 40 to 32. Benjamin 35 to 45. Dan from 62 to 64. Asher from 41 to 53 and Naphtali from 53 to 45. The total at Sinai of fighting men was 603,550. Now it's down to 601,730. In other words, the judgments of God had taken their toll, so that the number of fighting men had decreased by almost 2,000 in a generation. On top of that, except for Caleb and Joshua and Moses, all the mature men who had left Egypt were now dead. God's judgment had been pronounced upon them. The tribes which lost were Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, and Naphtali, five clans in all. The gainers were Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, and Asher. Seven clans in all. The major loss was sustained by Simeon, which had been most involved in the fertility cult apostasy described in Numbers 25. It was now the smallest clan. The major growth was in Manasseh, which increased over 60%. Now, in verses 52 to 56, we are given the rules for the division of the land once it is conquered. First of all, the larger the tribe or clan, the more territory it would receive. This census thus had both a military purpose and also to provide a basis for the division of the land. Second, the general area each clan would receive would be determined by drawing lots. The boundaries would be determined by these two factors. In verse 33, we read that Zelophehad of the clan Manasseh had no sons, but he did have five daughters. In chapters 27 and 36, their inheritance is cited. And, of course, we will deal with chapter 27. And nothing better indicates the stupidity and ignorance of feminists than this chapter 
nor their ignorance of the Bible. Now, normally, the oldest godly son, who was also responsible and capable, received the double portion in an inheritance. Since, however, the premise of biblical inheritance laws is the capitalization of God's kingdom, the godly child takes priority, whether male or female. Caleb clearly made his daughter Aksa his heir. We'll deal with this next week at length. In verses 58 to 62, we have the census of the Levites. In this instance, instead of an enumeration of fighting men of 20 years and over, all males from a month upward are numbered, 23,000 in all. They received no allotment of land, but they were settled instead in the cities and scattered among the twelve tribes or clans. They were to provide the religious, moral, and educational leadership in Israel. There was a third factor in the division of the land. Each area was to be named after one of the twelve sons of Jacob, that is, after the original head of the clan. There was thus a territorial integrity between the tribes and a clan loyalty established so that the Bible does see the importance not only of the family but of the larger family entity. This census not only looks ahead to the occupation but it is a reminder of the past. In verse 61 we are told And Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before the Lord. Levi had the privilege of receiving the tithes and offerings of Israel, of which a tenth went to the priests, according to Numbers 18, 25 through 32, to remind them of the necessity for faithfulness and obedience. They are here reminded again of the judgment of God on those who offend him and are presumptuous, especially among God's clerisy, his educational and intellectual leaders. The reminder in verse 65 that apart from Caleb and Joshua, and Moses would die before the invasion of Canaan, None of the adults who left Egypt were still alive tells us that God keeps his word. His judgment felled a generation and prevented them from entering into Canaan. This did not ensure the character of the younger generation, but it does mean that God keeps his promises, whether they be to bless or to curse. Now we see, as Robert Watson said a century ago of this chapter, the past receding, the future advancing, and God the sole abiding link between them. History collapses into existentialism when and where God and faith in him are forgotten. 
The binding between past, present, and future is God the Lord and his providential purpose. Our humanists are a generation behind the academicians because they still talk about a purpose of one world order and this or that humanistic goal. But in the universities, professors of history are often prefacing their course by the statement that history has no meaning, no direction, no purpose. The binding between past, present, and future is God the Lord and his providential purpose. And without that faith, not only is a sense of history lost, but also a sense of causality. The author of a recently published book held that it was wrong to blame prostitutes for the spread of AIDS among heterosexuals. An academic journal blamed Christians, not homosexuals, for the AIDS epidemic. Now, these are serious statements by academic authorities. This is, to put it mildly, a loss of any sense of history and causality. Well, not surprisingly, instruction in causality is not a part of modern education. The younger generation, unless they've learned it from their parents, do not believe in cause and effect. Our modern humanists believe that the world and history are what man makes them to be, not what God ordains. And it's only the professors who still have ties to the past who deal with causality. One arrogant current professor, Richard Stern, has titled a recent book, the invention of the real. And that's his thesis from beginning to end. A very favorably reviewed book. I'm happy to report it did not sell. But of course, he was a pure Hegelian. And for Hegelianism, the rational is the real. What the mind of man conceives, that is, the intellectual, is alone reality. Well, Dr. Stern's book is full of absurdities, all in line with the modern loss of reality. The emphasis on the allocation of the land by tribes or clans, is important, both in the form of their encampment in the wilderness and soon in the allocation of land, clan integrity is obviously stressed. To what extent tribal loyalties had been broken or damaged in Egypt, we do not know, except that the clans survived more or less intact. 
community is important to God. And as a result, on the human level, it must accompany community with God. Community among men and then community with God go together. The census and the proposed allocation of the land alike stress the community of the family and the clan. Joseph Parker, about a century and a half ago, made a telling comment on this census, and I quote, God is always numbering. He may number to find out who are present, but in numbering to find out who are present, he soon comes to know who are absent. He knows the total number, but it is not enough for him to know the totality He must know whether David's place is empty, whether the younger son has gone from the father's house, whether one piece of silver out of ten has been lost, whether one sheep out of a hundred has gone astray. We are all of consequence to the father because he does not look upon us through the glory of his majesty, but through the solicitude of his fatherhood and his love. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, we are told. It were better for a man that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea than that he should offend, wound the heart of one of these little ones. So everywhere we find God concerning himself with individuals, with single families, with solitary lives, stooping to marvelous condescension, sweeping the house diligently until he find the one piece that was lost. We need that kind of thought in human life. Living would be weary work without it, unquote. Our Lord declares the very hairs of your head are all numbered. This is not hyperbole. It is intended to be taken very literally. What scripture tells us in many, many ways, among them this census, is of God's particularity as well as his universality. False religions are very prone to stress universality with glittering generalities, all of which are without substance, because the particular is ignored. When I was a student, I had a course which dealt with various religions, in fact, two courses. And I read a great deal in the various so-called sacred books of the various religions. In fact, I went about it so seriously that I went through all of Max Muller's many, many volume translations of all the world's religions' writings. It was appalling. There were no people in them. In the Bhagavad Gita of India, there are some people named, but they're never persons. They just represent vague entities. People do not exist. They do not 
count in these religions. The only sacred writing of any religion that I've encountered in which there is a person is the Vietnamese book, The Song of Thu. And what it does is to give us one character, a woman, who goes through more hell than is conceivable that any one person could go through and survive. And the whole point of the book is, this is the way the world is. This is the way the gods are. They hate humanity. Many pretentious thinkers despise the Bible and find it uncomfortable reading because of God's precise, very precise, and total particularity. It is precisely this particularity that is the glory of our faith. There are people in the Bible. And it is this particularity that offends many thinkers. They want to think high, abstract, and noble thoughts. All other religions are full of glittering abstractions. But the Bible deals with persons because it tells us that God is one God, three persons, a personality, and we are created in his image. So instead of the universe being an abstraction and a meaningless one, so that all life is meaningless, we have total particularity. It is precisely this particularity that is the glory of our faith. And we read in Matthew 10:42, And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. That's a very particular God, precise about the details of our lives. We are likewise assured that God's judgments are particular and total. Well, the twelve tribes or clans had been encamped around the Levites with a sanctuary in the center. There were three tribes to a side. All the tribes under the leadership of Judah increased, whereas all those under Reuben's leadership had decreased. The Judah clan was coming to the fore in its predestined leadership, and Reuben was fading. This census was the beginning of the preparation of the second generation for the conquest and occupation of Canaan. They would soon be tested, and in Deuteronomy, we have a summation with some expansions of God's law, a summation to ready them for dominion. The military census reminded all the adult males of the coming war. No culture can survive which does not defend itself. Otto has 
defined in one of his papers decadence as the inability to defend yourself. And no longer, uh, and no mission, a culture can long last if it is not missionary minded. If it does not believe that its culture is worth extending to other peoples. Neither can any culture survive if it does not recognize that some practices cannot coexist with a living culture. The radical tolerance of our time to every form of evil, to pornography, abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, and much more, is not a mark of nobility, but of decadence. Both history and society exact death penalties. The question is, where will societies apply the death penalty? Against religion and morality or against evil? Death marks history. Because history is the record of fallen man's struggle against God, seeking total independence from God. Except for death, the result of sin, man would go on forever, defying God and attempting to create his towers of Babel. The humanistic world order is defiance of God. But for the godly, the time and death factor is an incentive to do what we must do without delay. Even our Lord declared, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. The census was thus a preparation for action. It alerted the men of military age to the necessity for battle. Let us pray. Our Father, make us more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, that we may become the shapers, the molders, the makers in Christ of all things, bringing every sphere of life and thought into captivity to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. <clears throat> did intermarriage take place between members of different tribes? Yes, it did. And uh, that will uh, be dealt with in the last chapter of Numbers. So there were intermarriages. Yes. Regarding the author you referred to, The Invention of Reality, isn't this really an effort to simplify reality? It's to make it man-made. That's the goal, yes. They want a history that is totally man-made, manufactured by man. Certain aspects of reality are today ignored. Yes. Well, you see, Immanuel Kant began this when he insisted that knowledge of the objective world, the world out there, is unknowable. That we cannot know the reality 
of this pulpit or of the building or of the natural world around us because everything he said is based on sense impressions reporting to the mind. So the mind has a second hand. That created a crisis for science when Hume first called attention to this. But Kant said, we need not concern ourselves about that. The world is an invention of the mind of man. It is a creation of the mind of man, not of God. So, for Hegel, next in line then, the rational was the real. What the intellectual said is reality became reality. And this stream of philosophy has created the modern academic and intellectual world. Now, some scientists, of course, are still not with it. And this is why, in the liberal arts, especially in philosophy and some other fields, they look down on them because they're still thinking in terms of a world of hard and real objects. But you're getting men in the sciences who are now moving with this time. So, we have for generations locked up ordinary people who think they're Napoleon or have delusions. But the intellectual can tell us all is a delusion, and we, in our rational and logical thinking, alone know reality. But we haven't locked them up. Meanwhile, they are destroying the world. Yes? In, in saying... Uh that these uh, academicians uh, have no purpose in history, it would seem to imply that they uh, perceive no underlying unity. And what I'm wondering is, as these people become more mature and influential, how their influence is going to break up uh, what remains of the cohesion in the humanist movement and uh, uh, totally obliterate it. That's exactly what is happening. Uh, this is why Lord Keynes, when he was asked about the consequences of his e economic theory uh, shortly after the end of World War II, what in the long run would happen pursuing his economics? And his response was, in the long run, we're all dead. In other words, it was short-term thinking. So, the existentialist mode of thinking, which says that only the moment is real, has been permeating one area of academic thought after another. So, we live in a world which believes there is no future, only an eternal moment. And so it is destroying its own future. Yes? Is there any uh, instance in history since the Bible where governments have ever been able to conduct an accurate census? Well, the U.S. census is off by, they estimate, 10%. Mm -hmm. Chinese communists, when they 
started in in China, they missed it by hundreds of millions. Yes. A lot of the censuses of our time are guesswork. We are given, for example, in uh, various record books, the population figures for Zaire and Zambia and uh, Burma. And these are laughable. They are only guesswork. The biblical census was by clans and the head of families, a very careful report from the grassroots on up to one person above them until it reached Eliezer and Joshua. So uh, it was not a census from the top down. The purpose of the modern census is increasingly statist. Uh, it's hard for us to realize that uh, the census prior to World War II was a very interesting historical census. And uh, the copies of the old census uh, records are not easy to come by. They would be two volume works which gave the population figures state by state, but it also gave a breakdown in terms of religious affiliation. You had the history. In fact, sometimes most of one volume of the two would be the history of every religious group including some very small groups with, say, 152 members. But there would be a full history. Then it would be carefully divided in terms of the rural and small town and so on segments so that you had a good indication of the nature of the country. The census was important not for the IRS or somebody in Washington in some bureaucratic basis, but for religious leaders and students to study the character of the country, for businessmen to know what kind of market it was, what percentage were in such and such areas. It was a totally different concept of the census. And we have taken and abolished all of that. We have a totally different census. Yes. Well, up until very recently, the only record was religious. Yes. And uh, it makes you wonder about the figures given for the uh, casualties of World Wars One and Two, when all the churches and temples and so forth were destroyed. Uh, how could anybody estimate? Who died and how many died? Yes. Yes. Church records and religious records of various sorts have been where they are still available, the best resource of historians. And because England has suffered less than some countries, it is a treasure trove for historians. Yes. Um, in your book, 
Foundations for Social Order, you were discussing the particularity and also the universality of God and how in a quest for an ultimate universal, certain philosophies veered towards universality at the expense of particularity and others the other way around. I was wondering if you could give, in a nutshell, the pitfalls that each of the extremes lead to and then how our faith in a triune God puts both together to our benefit. Yes. I've dealt with it at length in one of the many, and our time is running out, so I'll have to do it very briefly. Those cultures which stress universality at the expense of particularity end up with a monistic faith in which the individual doesn't count and the state is everything, and you have a total tyranny. Those which stress particularity at the expense of universality end up with a culture in which all you have is anarchy. There will be no cohesive tie, and the culture collapses, as Greek culture did under the impact of the cynics. Then, the only culture which makes possible an equal emphasis on unity or universality and particularity in the individual is the biblical because of the doctrine of the Trinity, of the equal ultimacy of the one and the many. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, three persons, all equal, so that there is both diversity and unity equally important in the Trinity. And a Christian culture alone stresses both. All other religions founder on it. It used to be said when I was a boy in uh, history, or, uh, philosophy books that the basic problem of philosophy was the problem of the one and the many. Now they don't even mention it for the simple reason they cannot solve it and, apart from the Bible, apart from Christian faith. So they'd rather act as though the problem does not exist than to admit there's only one place where the answer can be found. Well, our time is virtually up. Let us conclude with prayer. Our Father, we rejoice in thee and in thy providential care. And we pray, our Father, that by thy mercy and grace we may be empowered to turn this generation around and to make of a dying world a living one, that in Christ Jesus all things may be made new. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you guide and protect you this day and always. Amen.